So we're going to talk about uh, the death sins or the death laws. So at the top of the page, there's a quote. If anyone should cause one of these little ones to lose his faith in me, it would be better for that person to have a large millstone tied around their neck and be drowned in the deep sea. How terrible for the world that there are things that make people lose their faith. Uh, Such things will always happen, but how terrible for the one who causes them. I think some of the most hurtful things that happen to people are related to these death laws. And I think it's always surprising to me that the person who was harmed still believes. And so I think that passage certainly does apply uh, to these kinds of sins. In the Old Testament, there's certain kinds of sins that weren't automatically covered by the atonement sacrifice, nor by the daily sacrifices. Instead, death was the penalty for the wrongdoer. You couldn't go to the temple and make a sacrifice for these sins. There was no way to pay for them except with your own life. So what kind of sins could not be paid for through the atonement or through a daily sacrifice? Well, one was adultery. Another is animal cohabitation. A third is blasphemy, blaspheming God. A fourth is false prophecy. Another is fornication hitting or cursing a parent, homosexuality, idolatry, incestuous relationships, kidnapping, murder, prostitution by the daughter of a priest, rape, Sabbath profaning, sodomy, and sorcery. So none of these sins are covered through the atonement sacrifice, and you could not make a daily sacrifice for them either. The penalty was death to the wrongdoer. Now, if you look at this list, you can separate them into three main categories. There's sins against the body, which includes sexual sin. There's sins against established order, which involves rebellion. And then there's sins against God, and that's the idolatry. Another category you could say is bastards. These are people like the Ammonites and the Moabites that couldn't offer any sacrifice before God. So there's none of their sins could be covered, uh, atoned for, because they could not be included among the Lord's people until the 10th generation. We'll talk about the Ammonites and Moabites more in the curse chapter. But none of their sins could be atoned for or covered for 10 generations. I think we can say from this list that there are some sins that have more force and power than others. And so they need special treatment to be fully voided. These sins need to be treated in a special and specific way before God under the New Testament. Now, Christ paid for these sins. Jesus' blood is enough to cover these sins. 
but maybe we need to pray specifically to God in order to be cleansed and released from the power of these particular sins. I guess another way to say it is it seems that even after believers come to salvation, these sins still seem to have an effect in their life. Somehow they're not gone. They're not put off yet. We need to help them put these things off through prayer. Now, sin is sin, and there's no such thing as a minor sin. Then any sin can stand between us and God, but certain sins, once they're committed, they set in motion a series of events much bigger than the act itself. And I think we can say that's true for all of these death law sins. Now, Christ's sacrifice is more than just salvation. It's provided a way for us to be released from the effect of the sin on a day-to-day basis. When we come to Christ, often the burden of the sin has been lifted, but the consequence of the sin is still there. We continue to carry this while living in the sinful culture and continuing the patterns and the habits of the past until we pray about these things before before God. And with all these sins, we need more than just forgiveness. We need God to break the power uh, and the consequences of these sins. So they're different. They're different than the other sins. You can't atone for them. You can't make a daily sacrifice for them. In fact, if we lived in the Old Testament, you would pay with your own life for them. But under the New Testament, Christ's blood is enough. All we have to do is pray in a a certain way, and then it's completely resolved. All the consequences are resolved. So one of those categories, then, is sexual sin. So what are the consequences of sexual sin? We could say that sexual sin begins in the mind. There's always a thought in the mind before there's an action. And sexual sin can occur even though there hasn't been any physical touch. And so how can I say this? Well, Jesus himself said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so it's clear here that you can experience adultery in your mind When you do, you're guilty of committing adultery in your heart. You don't have to touch someone in order to say it's sexual sin. Now, there's a lot of things that go into what we call sex. The sexual act isn't just intercourse. There's all sorts of things that lead up to this. There's flirting and speaking and looking and holding hands and hugging and kissing and fondling and laying together clothed or fantasizing. All of these things are part of the sexual act. It's not just intercourse. For example, when you were a child and you hold your father's hand, 
that's much different than when you grew up and you held your boyfriend's hand. There's this tingly feeling. It's different. We're not just relating to each other in a, as two human beings, but there's a relating sexually that's happening. So not all hugs are the same. Not all kisses are the same. Not all holding hands is the same. Some are sexual and some are not. In some cases, we're relating to each other sexually. In other cases, we are not. Now, God has given sex as a blessing to married couples only. All these sexual things that are part of the sexual act are supposed to be for a husband and wife only. When a married woman holds another man's hand in a sexual way, she's giving away what doesn't belong to her. That sexual touch belongs to her husband. When a man is flirting with another woman, he's giving away what doesn't belong to him. That flirting belongs to his wife. So let me ask you, if you're married, is it okay if your wife flirts and holds hands with another man and hugs and kisses him in a, a sexual way? Is it okay if she fondles him or he fondles her? No, all these things are clearly actions that are reserved for a husband and a wife. All these things are part of what we call a sexual act. And so all sexual acts that are done outside of marriage are sexual sin. Now, some cultures have additional social standards that they add to what the Bible describes, and that's okay. You can add to it. You can't subtract from it. And so as long as these standards don't violate Scripture somehow, it's okay for those cultures to add these other things. And the reason why this is important is if you don't recognize that these additional sexual things are defiling, then you might not be very helpful. You can say, okay, from my standpoint, this is not defiling. You shouldn't feel this way. But the fact is, if they live in that culture and they do feel that way, you have to respect that standard that they have. And in order to resolve it, they're going to have to pray and accuse and forgive and confess and ask for forgiveness in addition to asking God to cleanse them from the defilement. So here's an example. In American culture, you know, everybody holds hands. It doesn't seem like any big deal. I still maintain it is because of the tingly feeling, but... Anyway, so this Muslim woman was a travel guide in another country, and an American man grabbed her hand and held it in front of the rest of the group. Well, you can say, well, that's no big deal. It's just holding hands. But in her culture, everybody who saw that from her culture considered it defilement, that uh, this was wrong, that it was sin. And she 
looked all around her immediately to see if anybody saw it because she also considered it uh, defiling. And so if you were doing a session with her, she would need to accuse and forgive that American man. And she'd also need to ask uh, God to cleanse her from defiling her in this way. Whenever there's a sexual relationship, there's consequences. One of them is that there's a spiritual tie that's formed whenever there's a sexual union. The basis for this idea comes from 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 17. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it says, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Okay, so it talks about flesh, it talks about body, it talks about spirit. So this passage implies that something happens spiritually. Although we become connected to someone physically through sex, we know that in reality we cannot become one physical body. Our cells do not intermix to make one hybrid body. We can only become one with them spiritually. So when Paul says that we're united as members of Jesus' body, he's referring to becoming one with Jesus spiritually. So Paul's making it clear here that we can't become one spiritually with a prostitute and become one spiritually with Christ. The prostitute's body is for immorality and Christ's body is for righteousness. So we can see from this passage and there is a spiritual bond, not just a physical connection, whenever there's a sexual union. Now, here's the thing. If uh, a couple is married, this spiritual connection is a good thing. But it becomes an issue that we have to deal with if they're not married. Because when they do become married, it affects the oneness of their marriage. There can be feelings of dirtiness, unworthiness, shame, and guilt as a consequence of sexual sin. It doesn't really matter if you're the victim or the perpetrator or willing participant. All those feelings still exist. As far as I know, a general prayer doesn't fix this problem. And just because you are a believer or time has passed, it doesn't fix this problem. The only one that can fix this problem is the Heavenly Father. One of the consequences, whenever there's a sexual relationship, there's a bond that's formed. Here's an example. This example is Lonnie. Now, Lonnie, before she became a Christian, she was engaged to Charles. She had told Charles that she wanted to keep her virginity until she was married. But one night she got drunk and high on drugs and she passed out. And when she woke up the next morning, she realized that Charles had raped her. 
there was no permission involved because she was passed out. And so this was rape. He raped her. Lanny, she broke off that engagement. Now, after this happened, Lanny dated several men and was sexually active with seven of them. Uh, eventually, she became a Christian and she stopped this promiscuous behavior. And as part of her preparation for the mission field, she received some counseling. In those counseling sessions, she confessed her sexual past, but in a very general way. And she did ask for forgiveness and then later married Rob. Now, Rob was vaguely aware of her past, but he didn't think it mattered anymore because it, she was saved now. Well, 10 years later and two children later, Lanny and Rob were missionaries overseas. And Rob came to Richard and Connie in distress. He said that Lanny is, she's distant. She's withdrawn from me. And the way he said it, she is not fully mine. Lanny was also upset because she didn't know what to do, how to bridge this gap in their relationship. So they said, can you help? They asked Rob not to be part of the session. He watched the kids. And they took a quick history from Lanny, and they found out all these things that, that we just discussed up above. And then they started working through that list of seven men, one by one, dealing with each one by name, starting with the first one, and so on. Now, Charles, the very first man, in this case, Lanny was a victim. She was a victim of rape. She was not a willing partner. She was a victim of rape. But she did confess that she got drunk and she got high in drugs, and that made her vulnerable. So she confessed that and asked for forgiveness. She also accused and forgave Charles, not just for the rape, but for the betrayal. He betrayed her. They were supposed to be married, but he raped her. He betrayed her, betrayed her trust. Now, sexually, Lanny had nothing to confess. She was a victim, but emotionally, she did feel shame and she felt defiled. So all this came out as they talked with Lanny about what happened. Lanny lived out of her state of defilement with all these seven other men after Charles. And with each one of them, she was a willing participant. She was a willing partner. She wasn't a victim with them. So Lanny accused and forgave each one of them without excusing them. Now, previously she had forgiven just in obedience to God's command. She didn't really understand the implications of what they had done, so the forgiveness was incomplete. With each one of them, she also confessed and asked for forgiveness for her part, and she did not excuse herself at all. After that, Lanny asked God to break the bond with each man that she had committed fornication with. 
She asked her Heavenly Father to break the bonds with each man from three different perspectives, break the spiritual oneness that they formed through sexual sin. As part of that, she gave up any sense of claim or ownership she had on that man. She also asked God to cut the bond, the physical bond, so that that man's touch would not be special in a good way or a bad way anymore. The goal was return that man to neutral. I don't want him set apart from others in any way. And finally, there is an emotional tie with each of these men. So she asked God to cut the emotional tie so there'd be no longer any emotional attachment or attraction to that particular man, either positive or negative. And then finally, Lanny asked God to cleanse her spiritually from the defilement that was created through the sexual sin with each man. See, this defilement, she felt, it doesn't wash off. It's not a physical defilement, or it's not just a physical defilement. It's a spiritual defilement. So she asked God to cleanse her from the defilement, the spiritual defilement. So she dealt with one man completely in prayer before she went on to the next. And after her prayer, the team leader, there's two safe helpers working with her. So the the leader of that team prayed a witnessing prayer, declaring what God had done based on Lanny's forgiveness, these men and her confession, and that the bonds were broken and that she was cleansed. They didn't have the authority to forgive her, but they could declare that she was forgiven because she fulfilled everything that God had required in order to be forgiven. So we can see from Lanny's case, they weren't resolved until they were dealt with. Each man was dealt with in a very specific way, not in some sort of general prayer, but in a very specific way. And once they had Lanny had finished all this forgiveness and cleansing. Their safe helpers brought them together and asked God to reunite them as husband and wife. Reunite them so they could become one in marriage. There were some interesting things that happened during the session. Lanny was sitting down, but later she told her safe helpers that When she prayed, she felt she was standing before God the entire time. And she saw herself as a ball or a blimp with uh, ropes on it, if you will. And each time the team leader declared that the bonds were broken with a man, she saw uh, the ball had one less string. And she said this happened every time as if a weight was lifted. And she became lighter and lighter. Another thing that happened as a result of the sessions is her recurring nightmares stopped. In this nightmare, Rob was on the other side of the room and she kept trying to cross over to him. But there was a man in the center of the room that stopped her. And now she realized that that man in her dream was Charles. 
the fiance that had raped her. After prayer resolution, the nightmare did not return. So we can say it's resolved now. She prayed in a general way before, but it wasn't resolved. She still had nightmares, and there was still this gap between her and her husband. But by praying in a very specific and detailed way, it was finally completely resolved. So each one of those seven men had been a set apart. They were different. They were unique. They were special compared to all the other men in the world. But one by one, she returned them back to neutral. And they're no longer special. They're no longer part of a unique group. When we say physical ties, we talk about his touch is not special anymore. We ask God to cut that physical tie. There can be other physical ties sometimes that need to be dealt with too. For example, this guy asked for the physical tie with his girlfriend to be cut, but he also asked for the the smell of her perfume to be cut off. Every time he smelled that perfume, he thought of her. Now, the problem was his wife wore that perfume, so this was not a good thing, very destructive. So there can be physical, other physical ties, such as the smell of perfume, or maybe there's special places that every time you go somewhere, you recall this person. Well, you can ask God to not make that place special anymore so that you can go there without thinking of that person again. Another example, one woman had sex with a monk, with a Buddhist monk, and she felt the spirit was transferred from him to her. Now, this isn't just their two spirits uniting. This is an an additional spiritual tie that was formed that actually involved an evil spirit. And so there can be other kinds of spiritual ties that you might have to deal with. Just a few words on claims. She's mine or he's mine. This feeling that they belong together. You can see this kind of claim in many different ways, not just through their words. For example, one man was married, but he continued to send his ex-girlfriend a Valentine's card. And his wife did not like that. But he said, well, she's just a friend. And then this ex-girlfriend got married and he stopped sending Valentine's cards. Why? Well, she's married now. So clearly his, his wife was his A plan, but the girlfriend was a B plan. And that Valentine's card showed that he still had a claim on her. Another example of a claim, a grandfather tells his grandkids about his true love and shows the pictures of his true love from high school to his grandkids. Now, the problem is, is his true love isn't his wife. And she gets very angry when he shows those pictures. And so by calling her his true love, he still has a claim on this girl from high school from 60 years ago. And his wife is supposed to be the only one set apart, but she's not. And so that's an example of a claim that needs to go. The last part then of Lanny's case is 
Lanny felt that she was damaged goods after Charles and after these seven men. She felt dirty. She felt defiled. She felt shamed. She felt worthless. And she lived this out with every man that she, that she met. Her dream of standing before her bridegroom whole and pure died with that rape. And now she'd been married over 10 years and she was unable to unite as one in purity with her husband. This is a pretty common thing where we see this gap between a husband and a wife. Usually you can trace it back to the sexual sin in their past. But after she finished her PR session, she said, I feel really clean. God restored her purity. Now, if you're doing sessions with a victim, they still need to be cleansed, but they don't need forgiveness. They have nothing to confess. Now, if they're a willing partner, they need forgiveness and they need cleansing. So even if you're a victim, we still need to deal with the bonds and the defilement. You may not want to be tied to the man that raped you, but there is a tie and there is defilement. And so you need God to cleanse you. Now, there's not a lot of verses in scripture that support this idea of defilement, but we can see it in real life around us every day. And so if we want them to be free from their past completely, we need God to cleanse them from their defilement. Now, some people, they they choose to sin. There's no trickery involved. There's no force involved. They're active and willing partners. Others are passive partners. They defile by allowing another to go beyond their standard. And then others are true victims, tricked or forced into sexual sin. But no matter which one they are, they still need God to break the tie, that spiritual tie, physical ties, emotional ties, and also to cleanse them from what they've experienced. Let's talk about uh, distortion of family relationships. The Old Testament makes it very clear that we're not supposed to approach any blood relative to uncover their nakedness. This phrase, uncovered nakedness, is used throughout the Old Testament, and it's referring to have a sexual relationship. When God created us, he created us so that we could have a relationship with him. And the best thing he could come up with to describe that relationship was that he was our father and we were his child. The family is extremely important to God. That was the best example he could find to describe his relationship with us. In fact, the whole idea of redeeming us from our sin was so that we could be in his family. He wanted to be our father, and he wanted us to call him father, and he wanted us to be his children, and he did that through redemption, through Jesus. 
So the family and the dynamics in a family are very close to the heart of God. The purpose of scripture then is to present us the principles on how a family should operate on a day-to-day basis. Both the nuclear family and also the extended family. And when we violate those rules, there's distortion that occurs. Distortion in our relationships. Distortion in all the relationships in the family. Not just distortion in the relationships, but even our identity as people of worth can be affected. And it can go even beyond that. Our view and our expectation of God can also be affected. So when there's distortion in our relationships within the family, there's some really huge consequences. Now, some of our relationships in our family are natural relationships. Other ones are ceremonial relationships like marriage or adoption. But all these things are covered in the Old Testament. They talk about family relationships throughout the Old Testament. Our extended family also includes like those who are related by blood, our grandparents, those and also our in-laws that are related through marriage. Now, when any part of the family is compromised by sexual sin, the entire structure is compromised because incest, meaning sex between family members, distorts relationships, all the relationships. So, for example, this father had sexual intercourse with his daughter, his oldest daughter, He paid a lot of attention to the oldest daughter, not just when they had sex. And so the younger daughter felt left out. Now, I don't mean that she wanted sex with dad. She wasn't even aware of that. But she saw all this attention that he was giving to the oldest daughter. And so his relationship with his youngest daughter was changed because of his relationship with the oldest daughter. The second thing is that There's two wives in this family, effectively, now, the oldest daughter and his wife. And so there's enmity between those two. There's not supposed to be two wives in the family, and certainly not one of them to be the oldest daughter. And so all the relationships in this family are affected by the father's incestual relationship with his oldest daughter. If you're talking to somebody that's, has experienced incest in the family, what they say can sound very confusing. For example, this woman said, well, my father loves me, but the way she talked about him just seemed uncomfortable to me. So I asked her, I said, so when you say your father loves you, what do you mean? Well, he has sex with me every night. That's how I know he loves me. So see, her definition of love was distorted. Distorted because of this sexual relationship that she had with her dad. And her definition of love isn't the Bible's definition of of love between a father and a daughter. 
And so when you're speaking with somebody that's been molested as a child or <clears throat> has been in an incestuous relationship when they speak, it can be very confusing and it can feel uncomfortable. And if it does, you need to stop and ask some questions. Scripture makes a distinction. Partners that, that are not married is called fornication. That means partners having sex prior to marriage is called fornication. Now, unmarried couples then fall into two categories. There's those who are pledged or in modern day language engaged to be married. And then there are those who are not, who are unpledged, who are not engaged. And so if we look at scripture and look at the pledged women first, it says, if you're out in a country and a man happens to meet a girl pledged to be married and he rapes her, only the man shall die. The idea here is that the girl is helpless and there is no one to help her in the situation. So she is an innocent victim. And so the man is the only one who dies. And another example, though, if a man happens to meet a in a town, a, a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you shall take them both to the gate of the town and stone them to death. The girl, because she was in a town and did not scream for help, and the man because he violated another man's wife. So in this passage, the point is the girl is not helpless. So she's also guilty because she did nothing. So both cases are pledged. In one case, she's helpless, and so she's an innocent victim. In the other case, she's not helpless, and so she's guilty too. In these cases, then, if you're in a session and you're dealing with an incident that involves engaged or pledged women, there's four issues that you need to consider. One is that the man sinned because he violated the pact that was made between the virgin and her betrothed. You would need to accuse this man for violating that pact. The second one, a pledged woman is considered to already be a virgin wife. So she's not available. She's, even though they're not married yet, yet, a pledged woman is considered to be a virgin wife. This man sinned. She belongs to her betrothed. She doesn't belong uh, to the, the man that slept with her or raped her. So the sexual activity then between a pledged woman is the sin of adultery. Now, when we do sessions, we want to use the words that God uses for the sins. They didn't sleep together. They committed adultery. He didn't mess around with her. He raped her. And so we want to use God's words for these things so that we recognize their full impact. Now, if she was helpless in the situation, then he also sinned by raping her. 
Not only did he commit adultery, not only did he violate the pact between the virgin and her betrothed, but he also raped her. So three different accusations. So what was the penalty in the Old Testament for rape? Penalty was death. God took this sin very seriously. What was the penalty for adultery? Same thing. The penalty was death. And so God considered this to be a very, very serious thing. It has huge implications and effects in the family. How does God see it, see things when neither one of them is engaged? How does he see that? In the Old Testament, if there was sex between a man and a woman and neither one was, was pledged, it created a necessity for marriage in that culture. But not only did they have to marry, but uh, divorce was prohibited. And we can see this in Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin who is not engaged and seizes her and lies with her and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. It's clear from this passage that this man sinned because he has to pay her father for seizing her and lying with her. The other reality is she's not a virgin anymore. So in her culture, she is no longer available to marry another man. So this man would acknowledge his sin by paying her father a fine and providing her a home for the rest of her life by marrying her and never divorcing her. See, what would happen to this woman once her father died? Wouldn't have any place to live. Well, this man must provide her a place to live and cannot divorce her. Now, it was a violation to seize her the first time, so it implies that he will not seize her again. In other words, he won't force her to have sex against her will. She might choose to have sex with him in order to have children, though. He doesn't gain the right to marry her by seizing and lying with her, but he does gain the responsibility, this responsibility, if the father demands it. So, for example, if the father rejects his payment of 50 shekels, then his daughter does not go to be with that man. It's reasonable to assume that these same principles apply to engaged couples that lie together before marriage. So let's say you're both engaged to each other and you have sex with each other before marriage. Well, you violated her because you're not married, so you'd have to pay him 50 shekels. And now because you laid with her before you were married, you have to marry her and you can't divorce her. It makes sense that the same set of rules would apply in that case. Why? Because there's, she can't prove her virginity on her wedding night. In some cultures, maybe a man will marry a woman even if she isn't a virgin, or she can provide herself a home. 
And so she has more choices than women did in the Old Testament. And so she doesn't have to marry the man that seized her. But the sex outside marriage is still wrong. It is still sin. The point of these verses is to make sure that this woman was taken care of, that she had a home after her father died. And so this is how they made sure that she had a home. Many of the married couples that come for sessions, they've had some sort of premarital sex together. And they give all sorts of reasons and excuses for why it's okay. Well, we were engaged and we're going to get married. What you're saying then is engagement and marriage is the same, so why be engaged? I mean, it's engagement. You haven't made a commitment. It's not the same as being married. Okay, we never had intercourse, so therefore we did not commit sin. Okay, well, all of these things you did do are part of the sexual act, and that's supposed to be only between a husband and a wife, but you weren't a husband and a wife at that time. Or even though we were laying together and we both had sexual release, we didn't take our clothes off. You still experienced sexual sin, whether you had your clothes on or not, and so this is still sin against God. Contrary to a lot of the thinking out there, just because you got married doesn't make all this premarital sexual stuff okay. It doesn't nullify it. The tie that you formed before you were married wasn't nullified either. There's still this bond that was formed, this unholy bond that was formed, through sex that was outside marriage, and it remains until you ask God to cut it, to resolve it. We live under the new covenant, so we don't stone people to death for this sin anymore. But all this sexual sin must be dealt with, beginning with prayer of forgiveness, but then also resolving the consequences, the bond and the claim and the defilement is what I mean by consequences. Now, neither love or planning to marry justifies this sexual activity before marriage. So what you need is a release from the unholy bond that was formed and cleansing. You need to be pure. And the unholy bonds need to be cut so that the only bond that remains after you're married is a holy marriage bond. For example, this couple is married. They've been married 10 years, but they live together, which means they committed fornication for five years before they married. The wife in her session should accuse and forgive her husband for his sin, having sex before marriage, and then confess and ask for forgiveness for being a willing participant. She should also pray and ask God to break the bond that they formed before they were married through that those sexual acts because it's unholy. And she should also ask to be cleansed because the bond was unholy. She was defiled by it. 
so that the only bond that remains is the bond they formed after they were married. Okay, so let's talk about marriage. It's marriage that creates this special relationship between a man, a man and a woman. And after they're married, we call them husband and wife. And according to scripture, in marriage, they become one. And Jesus said it was God who makes the marriage oneness. So this marriage should not be taken lightly. Distortion comes into the marriage when one partner or both partners are not pure. You might think that it's only the woman that's supposed to be a virgin, but it doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that the man should not be a virgin as well. It's implied. And so both of them are supposed to enter into marriage pure. That's God's plan. If you enter into the marriage and you're not pure, then there's distortion that comes with that that needs to be dealt with. Casual sexual activity before marriage, it's forbidden. And once a couple is married, there's no allowance for sexual relationships with anyone else. Adultery is the ultimate betrayal in a marriage. It has tremendous power and force, and it was punishable by death. Why? Because it affects so many people, and the effect is so deep. If a husband commits adultery, it doesn't just affect his wife. It affects his children also. They can sense the problems between mom and dad, and it makes them feel uneasy. What does all of this imply, then, is marriage does not nullify past sexual history. And if the partners enter marriage impure because they've committed fornication or adultery, then the marriage is not founded in purity until the past sexual sins are dealt with. And if there are still other sexual partners, either spiritually or physically or in their mind or life, there cannot be the oneness that God intended between them, nor the intimacy that he intended between the marriage partners. And so adultery and fornication have a big effect on the relationship in the marriage. In the Old Testament, you couldn't pay for adultery. You couldn't pay for that sin. There was no sacrifice you could offer. But Christ has fulfilled the law, and so he's not only paid for the sin of adultery, but he's also provided a way for the bonds to be broken and for you to be cleansed. So he's provided a way for reconciliation in the marriage to take place. Okay, so I want you to consider for a second here. This couple, there's this man, and he he's standing at the front of the church. It's their wedding day, the groom. And next to the groom are his three ex-girlfriends. And then on the other side, there's the bride. And next to the bride is her two ex-boyfriends. You laugh because that's not what they do at weddings. But spiritually, this is the picture. We need to resolve those previous relationships. We need to cut those ties. We need to 
They need to be cleansed from those unholy bonds so that when they stand before God on their wedding day, spiritually, there are no exes standing next to them. So this would be a very good thing to do before you get married is to deal with all those previous boyfriends and all those previous sexual things that have happened so that those ties aren't there on your wedding day. Let's talk about children. When you get married, then one of the natural things that happens with most couples that there's a child that's born. And, the, and when the child's born, there's a father-child bond that's formed. There's a mother-child bond that's formed. There's some distortion that can come. If the child was conceived before marriage, then the child is considered to be illegitimate from God's perspective. It says that that the child is under a curse. He's not able to enter the assembly of the Lord for ten generations. It doesn't mean that the child can't enter into the church. But what it is talking about is that there's a separation, a gap with God that exists that must be prayed about in order to resolve. The good news is it can be resolved and it's not difficult to do. The child would go before God and accuse and forgive his parents and then ask God for release from this curse and to be cleansed from this curse. See, Christ has provided everything we need, everything they need in order to be cleansed. Now, the child in this case is a victim. He didn't do anything, but he does bear consequence for his parents' actions. If the child is very young, then the mother or the father can go before God and accuse and forgive their partner, confess and ask for forgiveness for their part, and then the mother or the father can ask God to release their child from this curse and to cleanse them from it also. And so this can be dealt with, and there's a way to to do that. Children, when they're born, there's a father-child bond or a mother-child bond and these children are very precious to God, and they've entru- he's entrusted them to the care of these parents. God's anger is stirred up when he doesn't treat them well, and it's stirred up so much that it'd be better if there's a millstone around their neck and they'd be cast into the deep sea if they cause one of these little ones to stop believing because of the sin that the father does to them. So when a child's molested by a parent, their childhood is robbed. Their innocence is robbed. And it produces sexual feelings in the child that they don't know what to do with. They're not old enough to deal with these things. These sexual thoughts have been awakened in them before their time. Molestation is often the cause for teens to run away. It's also behind promiscuity. A child that's been molested has problems with sexual identity. 
and also homosexuality. So when a child is molested, how does it affect them? They grow up feeling helpless, feeling worthless, unlovable, and also confused. Scripture makes it very clear that there should not be any molestation in the family. Do not have intercourse with the daughter or granddaughter of a woman with whom you have had intercourse. They may be related to you, and that would be incest. And so molestation in the family is forbidden. When a child is molested by a parent, there's a betrayal that's happened. You see, this was their trusted mom or their trusted dad, and they betrayed that relationship. And now they feel not just betrayed, but they feel defiled. And there's now distortion in this relationship with their mother or their relationship with their father. And if the non-offending parent knew that this happened and they did nothing to protect them, then they feel double betrayed, betrayed by both the mother and the father. Now, a point I want to make here is anyone who's gone through this, anyone who's been molested like this, when you talk with them, they may be very confused. They need somebody to help them work through this. They can't work through this on their own. It's key that they break this unholy bond that was formed in the par- with the parent. They need God to break that bond that was formed and to cleanse them from what happened. So here's an example of Betty. Now, Betty was molested by her father as a teen, and she felt dirty and unworthy. She became a Christian and a missionary, and you could see the effect of her molestation in that she was constantly apologizing for taking up their time. So this showed a lack of self-worth. She focused almost exclusively on Jesus because she distrusted her earthly father, and so she also distrusted her heavenly father. And she lived out this life of a humble servant of God, not a daughter who could be loved for herself, but a servant who could only hope for approval for a job well done. Now, people who have been rejected or betrayed by their earthly father carry that over to their heavenly father. When a parent sins against a child, God is the ultimate loser because the child ceases to trust him also as well as the parent. Betty was a victim of her father's perverse desires, but she felt that she was at fault. Even years later, she still felt defiled. She lived and acted out of her state of uncleanness and eventually went into premeditating, degrading sexual sin. Even after repentance, she had to leave her ministry. Yeah, see, when a child is molested, they tend to think it's their fault. 
it's rare for them to think it's their father's fault or their mother's fault. Now we can see in Betty's situation then there's there's several different transactions that need to happen. She needs to accuse and forgive her father. The unholy father-daughter bond needs to be broken. She needs to be spiritually cleansed as a victim. She needs either to accept the holy father-daughter bond or ask God to break it. So these are the steps that she needs in order to be restored. So see, there's two bonds that were formed. There was originally there's just the father-daughter bond. But then when he, she was molested by her father, this other bond formed, a second bond. And that second bond was unholy, and it needs to be broken, and she needs to be cleansed. And then she has to decide, do I want the, the normal father-daughter bond? Do I want to keep it, or do I want God to cut it? Do I want God to strengthen it, or do I want God to cut it? Even though she resolved all of these things, she was free and cleansed, there was one consequence that remained. She never was allowed to return to her formal ministry. So the parent-child relationship comes with very clear guidelines as to what is proper relationship. Sex in any form is not one of the elements of a parent-child relationship. There should be no sexual relationship between a child and a parent. And when there is sex between a parent and a child, the whole child's whole world becomes distorted. When the Heavenly Father resolves all these issues, sometimes there's consequences that remain. But he gives grace and strength to live victoriously within those consequences. What does scripture say about brother and sister relationships? It says, do not have intercourse with your sister or your stepsister, whether or not she was brought up in the same house with you. Do not have intercourse with a half-sister. She, too, is your sister. Here's an example of Barry. Whenever his mother was gone, Barry's father would have a party. And he and the sons and the daughters would all commit incest. And this behavior was so terrible that when the mother finally found out about it, she could not handle it and committed suicide. And these activities created sexual defilement and bonds for all the members of the family. The brother-sister bonds were distorted, as well as the father-children bonds the bonds change from the natural to the unnatural as a pseudo-lover-lover bond. Besides these relational distortions, these incestuous orgies opened a door to the kingdom of darkness, and several members of the family were later involved in witchcraft and other occult practices. Later, Barry became a Christian and married, and during Barry's marriage, he continued to have incest with one of his sisters. In fact, when he and his wife of two years came to, to us for help, the marriage still had not been consummated. They still had not had sexual intercourse. 
Incestuous activities had become so commonplace to Barry that it took a lot of work on the part of the Holy Spirit for Barry to even judge the behavior as wrong or sinful. We are happy to report that when all of this was resolved, Barry and his wife consummate their marriage and lived a normal life. And when we last heard, they were in training for full-time ministry. So what does this imply? Sexual relationships between siblings destroy the natural sibling bonds. Illegitimate new bonds of pseudo-lover-lover are created between siblings. Incest creates confusion in all the roles in the family. Incest creates confusion in all the relationships uh, outside the family and in the family. And habitual, deviant, perverse, and sinful sexual practices open the door to the kingdom of darkness. So what does scripture say about extended family? Okay, do not have sexual relations with the sister of your mother or father, for that would dishonor a close relative. Both of you would be held responsible. In this passage, the aunts are in focus of the verse. In Leviticus, it goes on to describe all members of the extended family. In most of the other passages, it's, it's the males who are the aggressors are in focus. So it's a focus for the man as well as for the woman. Sexual relationships within the extended family cause confusion of roles and the family, even the extended family, is governed by the same principles and rules. And if they are not followed, if they're broken or there's distortion and confusion that comes into the relationships. So whenever there's sex between family members, there's confusion. There's no peace. There's confusion. There's destruction. It's not on a path to life. It's on the path to death. There is no peace. There's just confusion. So extended family forbidden from having sexual relationships. Let's talk about sexual sins of the mind. When a man looks at a woman with lust, he's experiencing the sin of adultery in his heart. He hasn't experienced it physically, but emotionally and in his mind, he's experienced the sin of adultery. And how do we know this? Because scripture records Jesus' words. You have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone that looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we are responsible for what is in our heart. When we allow ourselves to fantasize romantically about someone or to imagine being together with them, to imagine physical, emotional, or sexual intimacy, we've experienced that person in our heart. If they are not your husband or your wife, then you have stumbled, you have sinned, you've committed adultery in your heart. So this fantasy can come from a character in a book. It can come from a friend on the Internet. 
an internet spouse. There's websites where you can get married online. It can come from phone sex, a movie star, a music star, a TV star, a book hero, a colleague, a neighbor, coveting someone else's husband or wife, your hero, a fireman, a teammate, an ex-girlfriend, ex-boyfriend. There's an endless list here, but the point is when you fantasize about someone who's not your husband or not your wife, this is sin. You've experienced adultery in your heart. The second part is lust. We are responsible for looking and also to stop looking. How do we know this? It's recorded for us in Matthew. Jesus said, If your eye, your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So which eye is causing the trouble? Pluck it out. Though God doesn't want you to maim your body, he doesn't accept your excuse either. So you can lust after real women or men or porn magazines or videos or internet sites. Some other magazines, movies, catalogs, internet sites have sexual content, even though they're not porn sites. Strip shows, peep shows, some KTV bars, peeping Tom, exposing yourself, all these things are lust. In general, men are more sexually aroused by images and women are more aroused by words. Often a romance novel is more seducing than an image to a woman. If a story or some words arouse sexual desires in you, then this is also born. We are also responsible for touching and to stop touching. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it in Throw it from you, for it is better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. This is also spoken by Jesus. So which hand do you masturbate with when you lust after this woman in your mind? Cut off that hand. Though God doesn't want you to maim your body, he doesn't accept your excuse either. Masturbation that involves lust is sin. Erotic sexual services, including masturbation and massage parlors, KTV centers, hotels, escorts or prostitutes, all of these things involve lust and it's sin. You see, we are to be holy as he is holy. God would not command us to do something that we can't do. So we have the capacity to become more and more holy. We have his word and we have his Holy Spirit to help us. So God says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Another aspect of sexual sins of the mind is temptation. 
If you've been seduced by an image or some writing, then in prayer, accuse and forgive those who created it. But if you've entered into the temptation, then you are not innocent. God still holds you responsible for your thoughts and actions. So confess your sin, ask him to forgive you, give up your sexual claim on that man or woman in the image or in the writing. And ask God to break the bond you made with him or her in your mind and to cleanse you in your heart and soul. Just because he or she tempted you does not mean that you must sin. You can choose not to enter into the temptation. Maybe you did not search for this image or text. It just popped up on your computer screen. Do you continue to look and begin to fantasize about him or her? Stop yourself quickly, then pray, accusing him or her and the one who sent that image to your screen, and then hand them over to God. Confess that you didn't delete it immediately, but let yourself lust after him or her and ask God to forgive you. Maybe you believe that you cannot control yourself, but you are made in his image. You are one of his sons and his spirit is with you. So this belief is a lie. Ask him to forgive you for believing a lie. Reject the lie and ask him to break its power. And if you have the faith of a mustard seed, then ask him to show you the truth in a way that you will remember. Satan does not have more power than God. Some other common lies, I can't control my thoughts, I'm too weak, I can't help it. Another sin of the mind is coveting. A man sexually aroused by specific porn images, he may uh, start comparing his wife to the woman in the image and become dissatisfied with her. He might also ask her to wear the same clothes or perform the same acts as the woman in the image. The images that satisfy him today become less satisfying over time. If she refuses to comply because she doesn't feel comfortable with being compared or feels degraded by doing what he says, he may become more and more dissatisfied with her. The problem here is that he was not supposed to see those images in the first place, and now he is comparing his wife to the woman in the images. Sex is for a husband and a wife only, and there are not supposed to be any observers. He is supposed to delight in his wife, not covet another man's wife. In a similar way, she may start to compare her husband to the man in the romance novel. Emotionally and physically, she's supposed to delight in her husband, not covet another woman's husband. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife. Exodus twenty seventeen. Of course, comparisons can also be made between a spouse and ex-girlfriends or boyfriends, as seen in this example. Joe related to several women before he was married, and we talked about those women in his life, and he insisted that they had no effect whatsoever in his current marriage. So I asked him, so how does she compare in bed? And he began to tell me. I stopped him before he could answer and told him that God never intended that he compare his wife to another woman, that these expectations lead to dissatisfaction and rob him 
and his wife of intimacy and joy. He had defiled the wedding bed by making that comparison. Even though there is no physical relationship with a character in a romance novel or a woman in a porn image or video, they have experienced sexual sin physically, emotionally, and spiritually. They need to go through the full process of accusing, forgiving, confessing, asking for forgiveness, giving up their claim to getting their sexual satisfaction from the woman in the image or the man in the book, asking God to break the bonds and to cleanse them from their sin. They also need to ask God to bind up the emotion tied to those images, even if they were pleasurable feelings so that the images have no power any longer. If they continue using porn after they have gone through this process, there may be destructive beliefs or even spiritual forces that need to be dealt with also. Whenever there are compulsive or addictive behaviors, this is a possibility. They may also have a rebellious attitude, turning away from God, ignoring their own conscience, and even the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Just a comment here is fantasizing can be extremely powerful. My colleague and I did sessions with a woman, and she talked about this man for three sessions. And at the end of the third session, we realized that she's never even met this man, but he was still very real to her. In her fantasies, she experienced him emotionally and spiritually and even physically through masturbation. And so don't underestimate the power of fantasy. There's a lot of things happening that are fantasy-oriented. There's these online marriages. There's AI, sexual bots, now on the Internet. So this fantasy thing is very real. And it is very defiling. Just be aware that this is growing. There's a list at the end then of this topic of sexual sin. Fantasy and imagination. Rape. Fornication. Homosexuality. Including emotional incest. Adultery and infidelity. Including emotional Adultery, lust of the eye, masturbation, pedophilia, pornography, voyeurism. Voyeurism is peeping Tom or watching somebody strip shows or watching somebody dress or undress, watching in on somebody, having sex. This is all forms of voyeurism. So just in summary then of the implications of sexual sin, there's consequences to breaking the pre-marriage pledge, willingly or unwillingly, and terrible consequences to the resulting offspring. There may be purity before marriage. There must be purity before marriage. Sexual sin was grounds for nullifying the marriage. The marriage vow must be kept or there'll be a, there's a betrayal of trust and the oneness of the husband-wife relationship is compromised. There must be purity between the members of the family 
sex is only an element between a husband and a wife. It is not an element in any other family relationship. Sexual relationships between two people make them one spiritually. Sexual sin keeps the participants unsettled with continued guilt under the consequences and power of the sin and leaves them with a feeling of uncleanliness cleanliness, and worthiness. So how do we deal with these? How do we deal with sexual sin? The first steps we've studied already is understand what happened clearly, step one. Step two, they need to accuse without excusing the wrong. They need to forgive. They need to confess without excusing themselves and ask for forgiveness. And oftentimes, this step six is very important. They have to accept the forgiveness God offers by forgiving themselves and give up the harmful emotions and memories to God, putting them under the control of the Holy Spirit. So these are all the steps of the prayer of forgiveness. If you stop there, you wouldn't be finished because you also have to do, deal with the claim and the bond and the defilement. So reject the claim that they made on you as a sexual being and declare that you make no claim on them as a sexual being. Ask your Heavenly Father to break the unholy bond that was formed and ask your Heavenly Father to cleanse you from the spiritual defilement. So that's all done by the hurting one, the wounded one, and once they finish the prayer of forgiveness and the resolving of unholy bonds and defilement, then the safe helper can add a witnessing prayer. Depending on the situation, you may have to ask God to break or restore family bonds. You may have to deal with words of power or lies or worthiness that are related you may have to deal with occult issues that come out of the sin that you've, you're dealing with. And you also may need to deal with rebellion and authority issues that come out of that sin. That's it on sexual sin. This is usually where we start with a person as we deal with sexual sin because it is spelled out very clearly in scripture what, what is right and what is wrong. And the person, the hurting one, feels tremendous relief when they get rid of this. When this burden is gone, they feel tremendous relief. And so, unless there's a, a good reason, uh, this is where we would start in doing sessions of, is on sexual sin.